Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we outline five tax traps that could be lurking for you. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you. Good to see you for the second time this week. We're getting ahead of some recording because you, my friend, are the one doing some traveling now. I am. I've got a lot of travel coming up and I am pretty excited about it. So um, yeah, I think by the time this airs, I will be wrapping up that week, but I'm going to be out in Colorado doing some skiing. Sounds like a great time for you. I was never a skier, uh, but I would be happy to sit in the clubhouse and enjoy a, a hot cocoa or two while you hit the slopes. There you go. Well, you're, you're welcome anytime. But uh, yeah, look, looking forward to being out there. This is one of my one of my favorite things to do each year is to to go find some snow and and hopefully a pretty nice mountain to ski on. So um, that that's what we're looking forward to coming up. Awesome. In terms of other things going on, Dan, it is tax season, baby. How excited are you? Very much not excited. I, I hate it for so many reasons. First, on a personal level, neither of us are regular W two employees of a company where we can take our W-2 form to an accountant and just wrap up that process. We are business owners. And for that, it means we need to get company books done before we can get the information to pass along to the accountants or, or to file ourselves. We are shareholders and or partners in partnerships or other corporations that issue K-1s, which don't come till March if you're lucky. Um, it's a very prolonged experience for me. And I wish I could hit the fast forward button for at least this one part of my life. Yeah, no, it every year it's just a record keeping nightmare for me. It's it's not something I look forward to, but the deadlines do help getting 1099s out on time and and other things like for each of these businesses. Just knowing that there is a deadline for it that tends to help me quite a bit. And really, that topic of taxes must have inspired our show this week because that's what we're talking about is tax traps. Hold on to your seats. It's time for tax talk. I don't think people are going to tune out, by the way. I, I know you worry that sometimes when we talk taxes, people are just going to be like, oh, gross, get me out of here. I would suggest that our listening audience is a pretty tax-aware audience, and I think that they are excited about a tax show, not disappointed in a tax show. I hope that's true, because I think for people who are otherwise doing a great job with their personal financial planning, tax is an area where you can often find opportunity for optimization and saving yourself some money, whether that be this year or over the long run. So hopefully a few of these tips will help you implement something in your personal life that'll leave a few extra shekels in your pocket at the end of the day. Yeah. And I mean, we beat this pretty hard in terms of a theme on our show, but uh, what you're going to hear today, I think as a recurring element is how we think about taxes over the long term. And I think for so long, taxes were just a very, very short-term focus of looking at last year and deciding how you pay the least amount possible. For a number of reasons, things like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which is going to expire at the end of 2025, we've got uncertainty, we've got all sorts of things. 
But I believe we need to be looking at taxes holistically. I think we need to be looking at a much more drawn out period. Where are the opportunities for you as an individual? Where are the traps? Where are the kind of bombs that are going to go off in terms of your your tax, taxes and optimizing that? And so I think if we're getting more long-term in that thinking, we're going to do a much better job over time. And that's what all of these things we're talking about today are really focused on. Speaking of long-term thinking, you can't go any longer term than this. Uh, Ross, you sat in on a tax seminar the other day through a software that we use and love that helps us with our tax planning. And one of the topics they brought up was the concept of the widow or widower penalty. Uh, and I thought that was a great place for us to start. So why don't you share a little bit about what you took away from from that topic? Yeah. So, um, and this is something that I, I've been aware of, but I think it, it refreshed it in my mind is how meaningful this can be. And essentially, all this means the widow or widower's penalty is the fact that your tax bracket is going to change when your spouse passes. In the year, if you've got a spouse that passes away, you continue to get to file uh, married for that calendar year. But after that, you're going to essentially go back to the single brackets. And what really can happen here, I'm not going to call it the worst case scenario, and certainly there's the emotional loss and everything else that we're going along with. We're simply talking about this from a financial perspective. But what happens is if you've got required minimum distributions already kicking on, we've got taxes coming out of that IRA money, we've got maybe Social Security being drawn already, which we would expect at that age, and then boom, now you move into this lower set of brackets. And that same amount of income, even if the income at the household level hasn't changed, but you're going to be paying a lot more in taxes on it. And I think that that is probably something that we're not talking about enough. Right. The the tax brackets change, the standard deduction changes. So if you're not careful with your lifestyle or expectations, that can be a hard adjustment to make at a difficult time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so if we're just looking at the married filing jointly brackets for 2023, married filing jointly right now, if you had $100,000 of income, you're in the 22% bracket. So you're you're basically you can go all the way up to 190,000 and not exceed 22%. So if that immediately reverts you back into the single brackets, that same 100,000 that pushes you to 24 and you go, "Okay, well maybe that's no big deal to see a 2% bump." But remember, you've got the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expiring at the end of 2025. So really, if you were at 100,000 in the previous tax rates, if we go back to 2017 rates, you're moving up to 28%. So now you're paying an additional 6% on income. It just, at the higher levels, it's even worse. You, you get into the you know, 30 plus percent tax rates pretty quickly. I think that's, a, that's just a bad situation to be learning that your tax rate is going up, even though your income may be coming down a little bit. It, it's just a surprising thing to have happen when, when I don't think you were expecting it. And where this can really put you in a pinch is if you are delaying drawing from retirement assets, the pre-tax accounts until much later, you might be forced to take a lot of income out of those accounts at the individual rate, which is going to be more punitive from a tax perspective. So you might've been deferring money at a lower rate and pulling it out at a much higher rate you know, when people are making these plans, you're thinking about where are tax rates going to go in general, or where is our household income going to go in general, but we're not so often having the conversation about 
what happens if I'm a single filer having to pull this money out down the road? Yeah, I, I think I would. I don't normally even think to look kind of across those bands. You just kind of think to look in the one that you currently are in, right? You're not going to go read the head of household rates if you're not filing head of household. You're not going to go file, you know, you're not necessarily looking at the joint rates if you're a single filer today. So I think we tend to be focused on, you know, reading those tax brackets in the band that we currently apply without even thinking about the shift between them. So, um, you know, as we've seen Secure 2.0 push the RMD age out even further, I just think that it continues to encourage people to delay, 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 where that's really not what we want to be thinking. Right. You have to think long-term, and there might be opportunities to take money out of those pre-tax accounts earlier to help reduce or smooth your lifetime tax burden. The other thing, and I think this is kind of the 202 level of the same thought process, is actually thinking intergenerationally. If that money is not really being used by the parent and it's going to be inherited, you know, What's the tax rate of the person inheriting the money? If you've got kids that are, you know, highly earning individuals, if they're doctors, if they're in the prime of their earnings career, kind of dumping an additional uh, bucket of money on them, which remember, they can't stretch over their lifetime anymore. They have to take that money out over a 10-year period. You can take it anytime in the 10-year period, but if you are inheriting an IRA that is not from a spouse, you have 10 years to empty it. That's a very short amount of time if we're talking about meaningful dollar amounts, and all of that is going to be income to the recipient. Yeah, absolutely. That 10-year window can be, can be tricky because when you're in it and you have to make that decision every year as to how much you should take out, early on, you might feel like it makes more sense to defer because it happens to not be a good year to pull money out because you have extra income from whatever sources may be maybe paying you, but then you're going to be stuck with a larger amount down the road and it may never be a good year to pull it out. So having a strategy or at least triggers that dictate how much you should be pulling within that 10-year period makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, when we came up with this idea of tax traps, Dan, you immediately went to one in the real estate world. What was the first thing that came to mind for you? For me, depreciation always comes up in my mind as a tax trap, especially if you're depreciating a property that you own. Um, you know, depreciation is a gift when you get to use it for current years to offset income. But when you sell that asset, it is often a, a tax trap. People aren't expecting to pay that kind of tax on the sale of a home because you just think of what did I buy it for? What am I selling it for? So to, to go back and explain what I'm talking about, if, if depreciation on a home is new to you, uh, you can deduct a certain amount against your home for basically the wear and tear of your home stretched over the useful life of that of that property, according to the IRS. So if you have a million dollar home, maybe they'll let you take, just using round numbers, 20 grand of depreciation against it in a given year. So that's great. If you earned $50,000 of rent, you get to reduce it by $20,000 and not pay tax on the whole thing. At the end of time, when you go to sell that house, though, all that depreciation you took, the IRS is going to say, all right, now we need to get that back from you. So we, we're going to have to tax that depreciation, and it could lead to a really large tax bill uh, at the end of that transaction. And uh, you know, if you weren't planning on that, you may have to, have to change your plans for what you were going to do with those dollars. Yeah. I mean, so, so what can happen here, you're typically not depreciating the value of the land. It's just the value of the structure. So even if you bought the home for a million dollars, you're never, you're never going to get all the way down to, 
a million dollars of depreciation typically because you're going to have some land value and some structure value on something like that. But either way, if you hold a piece of real estate as a rental for a very long time, that's just a continuing clock, right? And then you get to a spot where you go to sell it and maybe the entire value of the home is being treated as some form of gain, either in that depreciation recapture or actual gains on the increase in value. And and the key there is that the depreciation recapture is taxed as ordinary income up to a cap of 25%. So you're not getting that preferential capital gains treatment that you're normally expecting on a long-term held uh, investment property. So uh, yeah, I, I think it is a consistent surprise for people. And you can even run into this if you're depreciating just a home office or just a space in your home, which uh, I had never thought about. But there is two methods when you calculate kind of home office use. There's a simplified method and then there's like an actual expense method. And if you're using the actual expense or the standard method uh, rather than the simplified, you can run into depreciation recapture even on a primary residence. Uh, and that that's a, a scary, scary thing. With more people working from home and looking for ways to save money, I promise you depreciating your home may come up in conversations for, for the home office use. Um, and that's something you should be aware of if you're going to make that decision. Yeah, I mean, that would, to me, that would encourage me to use the simplified method unless there was a major tax savings for using the actual method on your home office use. Because it can, if it's going to come back to bite you later, even saving an extra couple bucks today probably isn't worth it. You know, we always put the disclaimer on all of these tax discussions to check this with your CPA and your filer. Um, you know, we, we know enough to be dangerous in this area, but uh, that's something that you want to be very, very careful with is kind of setting yourself up for that particular situation. Next, one of the ones that you came up with, which I think relates more to our first topic of the widow penalty uh, with unexpected costs that come potentially in retirement, was the IRMA um, I, I've always called it an Irma penalty. I'm not sure that's the correct terminology. Uh, but uh, Ross, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Irma is and how it may impact retirees in particular? A sassy lady named Irma. Who knew? <laughs> uh, okay, so first of all, even though I have referenced Irma for many, many years, I always forget what it stands for. Irma stands for Income Related Monthly Adjustment Amount. I'm going to forget that, that tomorrow. That doesn't sound any better than IRMA. Uh, no. But I-R-M-A-A is the acronym. And what IRMA is, is basically the adjustment to your Medicare premiums based on your income. If you've got Medicare and you are paying Part B premiums or Part D premiums uh, as part of your plan, which is that's your your doctor's visits and your your prescription drug coverage, the higher your income is, the more you are asked to contribute. And so... I think for people that have new income sources kicking on, maybe it's the required minimum distribution for the first time. Maybe they had a big expense last year and they took a bunch of money out of their IRAs, which all registers as income for the year. But you can run into issues where your Medicare premiums jump as a result of that income going up. And I think that that can surprise people quite a bit. It can be a big surprise because you may feel like you have no new sources of money. It's just a factor of where they're coming from for you, in particular, as we talk about IRA distributions. But magically, you have thousands of dollars of extra expenses a year related to Medicare. And uh, if you're not planning ahead for that or watching those brackets, you know that could be an unwelcome discovery. 
Yeah, so so I did the math on this, and at the top level, if you have and, and granted, this is very high income levels. This is seven hundred and fifty thousand above married filing jointly. So if you're at three quarters of a million dollars in retirement while you're on Medicare, like good for you. Maybe maybe this is a complete nothing burger of a number. But relative to the base plan of somebody making 194 or less married filing jointly, the difference in premium is basically almost 500 bucks a month. It's like 473 a month, which, you know, that's $6,000 over the course of a year, roughly. So uh, not that it's, again, for, for somebody at three quarters of a million in, in income, maybe you're going, yeah, who cares? It's a, it's a few thousand dollars. But uh, I do think if you're kind of on these bubble amounts that may be getting a surprise increase to your Medicare premiums, not going to be the most fun thing to have happen. And so generally, 194 or less is the married filing jointly bracket. Then there's a small increase up to 246, then 306, then 366. And then it starts getting getting pretty hefty. So, you know, the, those those numbers are the thresholds that's easier to look up, and we can put in a uh, link to where those thresholds can be found. But if you're kind of on those bubble amounts, it might be worth trying to reduce some income or take money out of an you know, an account that isn't an IRA if you can, if you're not already up against the the required minimum distributions, just to kind of manage that particular situation, so you don't see an increase in your Medicare premiums that you weren't expecting. Yeah. And even from the lowest bracket where you're not getting that extra amount on top of your base premiums to the second tier for two people, if you're both in retirement and crossing that bridge, that's a couple thousand dollars a year when you're looking at part B and D. Um, and you know, $2,000 is a big chunk of change for most folks. And I wouldn't like to pay that if I didn't have to, or if there was a way around it. All right. So our next two here, I think are related and these are really situations where you can end up with a tax bill at the end of the year that you were not expecting. Version one is selling stock. If you're selling appreciated stock in a brokerage account, there is not an automatic way to withhold that I have ever seen in a normal broker. And uh, I think this also applies if you've got employer stock, for example, that you might cash out. Uh, from your employer. So maybe it's not even in a brokerage account, but if you are selling appreciated stock, you could see yourself with a pretty meaningful tax bill. And the thing about it is, again, there's no automatic way to withhold in most cases. You're on your own for that to either increase your withholding through your other methods, meaning you could increase your withholding through your just employer comp. You could do a quarterly payment, if that makes sense, to make an estimated payment. But that's not going to happen for you. And so if you forgot about it last year and you sold some appreciated stock, I think that comes back to bite a lot of people in April. Yeah, a year is a long time. You might forget about the trading you did at the beginning of the year by the end of the year. Hopefully you're tracking along the way if you're doing a good job. But you know, maybe you're sitting at the beginning of 2022 having sold some stocks for a gain. At the end of the year, everything else went down into the hole and you figured out we're dealing with losses. I don't need to worry about it, but that wasn't true. And you better come up with the cash from somewhere. So hopefully you had it on the side. Well, and that's exactly right. Because if you're going to be selling something in a brokerage account, and then you immediately repurchase money with those proceeds, you maybe feel like you have to come up with the tax bill money out of cash flow, where the gain was really kind of a phantom gain. It wasn't something that you felt in your cash flow. Um, and I think that that's where people get in the most trouble. And again, last year being what it was in the market, the maybe the worst case version of this is you sell a bunch of stocks at the beginning of 22, 
you buy something else, that thing declines in value, but you don't sell it. And so you end up kind of with declining account balances, no cash flow from the sale, and a tax bill. And that that's a really kind of ugly trifecta of, of places you want to be. And so for me, even though there's many ways to not have to do the estimated payment, I think a lot of people don't like making estimated payments. That's my preferred method. If I know that I'm setting myself up for a likely tax bill, I would rather pay the bill like right after I get the cash from from whatever's creating that tax. I personally like to make the estimated payment and then just be done with it. And if I overpay a little bit, no big deal. I'll get money back. But uh, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm having that surprise owing experience at the end of the year. I like to stew on it, stew on it until the end of the year <laughs> and just remember it and, and be grumpy about it. So that's just playing with fire, Dan. You're just expecting yourself to remember your, your tax burden all year? I do. I keep everything else in my head. Nothing will go wrong. Yeah, that, that's a foolproof method. Speaking of phantom profits, the other thing that came to mind, which I think is a shock to most people getting into business ownership for the first time, is how pass-through entities work. So if you're a uh, member of an LLC or a partner in a partnership, your profits for the business, hopefully you're having profits, are going to flow through directly onto your personal returns. So if you're a 50% owner of an entity that made $100,000, congratulations, you have to report $50,000 of income on your tax return, whether they paid you that money or not, which can be a difficult thing to get your head around if you're in this for the first time, thinking, all right, I don't, I don't have $50,000. Why do I have to report $50,000 to the IRS? But you do. So you need to plan ahead and, and hopefully the business can distribute some money to, to cover that, or you need to find a source to pay that tax as well. Yeah, and so this is specific to pass-through entities like an S-Corp. Um, and, and so, yeah, when you get that form at the end of the year, is that an 1120? Uh, 1120 is the S... Yeah, that's that's right. That's the S-Corp filing, yeah. Um, so when, when you get that form at the end of the year that's like, yeah, you showed profits on your portion of the ownership, that is not a cash transaction, right? And it's just a, a an accounting recognition of the profit but you may have no additional actual income to deal with that. And so I, I do think, you know, whether you consider it private equity or, you know, kind of small angel deals, I think those are really interesting ways to invest if you've got access to them. But that's a very likely situation to come up, especially in a business that's still in growth mode or mostly wants that cash to, you know, expand its ability to to kind of handle the future. It's is most businesses that are retaining that cash that's going to be tough to deal with. Even if they are showing on paper profits, you're going to have to come up with the money for it. Yeah. It can cause a lot of pain points, even at the simplest version, right? If, if they're reporting that at the end of the year and you don't know where that's going to fall, you, you could be under withholding. I mean, you may be facing tax penalties if you're not paying quarterly estimated payments. Um, so it is a tough thing to navigate. But again, like Ross, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. It's just a matter of being aware of what's coming and planning for it. Yeah. I mean, just, having good communication and working with a business owner, uh, you know, if you're, if you're in the kind of silent partner role, having a, a team that is communicating that sort of stuff effectively is really helpful as long as the business owners are aware of it. So if they're not, they, they probably should be. Cause I think if you've taken investor dollars, you've got a responsibility to at least help them manage the situation. Yeah. Just to put a bow on that, the alternative to pass through taxation of businesses is like a C corp taxation structure 
that's less favorable in a lot of circumstances because then the business is paying taxes as an entity and then you are taxed again when they disperse money to their shareholders and you are taxed for that dividend payment or distribution. So they call that double taxation. So where the pass-through thing doesn't seem ideal, at least there is only one layer of tax that you're dealing with and that might be more favorable. Yeah, so a bunch of different places. I know some of these were a little bit nuanced, but let's just review where we think kind of the tax traps to be aware of are. Number one, the widow penalty. If you've got a spouse that passes away, you're going to be moving from a likely married filing jointly bracket into a single bracket in the future. It doesn't happen immediately. You've got a little bit of time to make that adjustment, but that can can compound an already very challenging time by adding a tax issue to it. Number two is depreciation recapture. If you've got a home that you are depreciating, be very aware that when you sell that home, that recapture is going to come back and be a nice uh, kick in the rear end when you go to unload it, unless you're doing something like extending that ownership through a like a 1035 exchange or is it 10, a 1031 exchange? Yeah, 1031. 10, 1035 is insurance. 1031 is home. Excuse me. Our number three is a lovely lady named Irma that if you've got a big increase in your income when you are on Medicare, that you could have an increase to your premiums. So be aware of how that income is going to drive premiums if you are on Medicare and paying for those Part B and Part D premiums. Number four, selling stock, appreciated securities, even if you're not actually moving the cash into kind of an operational account from its investment home, that is a taxable event. Um, and just being aware of that, being as a- ahead of it as you can be, however you choose to deal with that, I think is an interesting uh, spot where people can get surprised. And finally, pass through entities that may be kicking out taxable income without any ca- taxable cash flow. Those are our five tax penalties for today. Dan, we did it. We got through a tax episode. We made it. And it only took us 30 minutes. Who knew? Yeah, not not too bad. A um, little bit of editing in this one. That's all right. We appreciate everybody tuning in this week. If you've got questions for us, things that you'd like to hear us weigh in on, check your balances at outlook.com. Dan, we are almost out of coffee mugs. Oh boy. What comes next? I think I think I think we're down to like 9 left. So th- those should go fairly quickly. So if you've been waiting on sending us a note or wanting a check your balances coffee mug, wait no longer. Uh this is a good time to be writing in. Uh, I'm actually excited to get them out of my home officially. I've been been dealing with these things for a while. We probably bought, bought too many, but uh, yeah, I don't know. What's the next swag item that that we're gonna do? I was I was kind of thinking like reusable shopping bag, like a like a grocery tote or something like that. I'm constantly like chasing those down because now I'm in a county that is charging for bags at the store. Uh, they they no longer will let you just like take a, a plastic bag out of there. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. That that was my idea, but I'd love to hear if the listeners have something that they would want a massive Check Your Balances logo on. Within reason, listeners, don't be crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the key for me on this is actually that it, I'd love to have something that's easier to ship. Shipping mugs around the country was a huge mistake. <laughs> that, that was just a massive tactical error on our part. So something that's like a little bit lighter, a little bit easier to ship would be really ideal. Yeah, this essentially turned your garage into a fulfillment center and then yeah. created a lot of administrative headaches to to fulfill these these orders. 
It it did, yeah. And and this is in another area where where I'm not great. But no, they they've been really good, and the feedback on the mugs has been good. I think everybody that has gotten one has liked it. So um, we appreciate it, and hope anybody out there listening and sipping their coffee from a CYB mug is enjoying it. I know I do every morning. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. We will catch you all next week on another episode.